0: Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're joining us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can sign up. Uh, You can use the Join Us tab to uh, join us to become a producer, to add to the show by asking your questions, also by joining some of our community activities. Uh, Our second hour, usually we um, focus on a particular topic. Uh, Saturday is our education hour, so we'll be turning things over to Dave Trotman, and he's going to be... Uh, expounding the benefits of PDFs for us. So if you'd like to add questions uh, for the first hour, you can do so. And also the tag PDF, you can add questions for the second hour. Dave, what do we
1: have? The first one is from Todd Perry in Prescott, Arizona. Being out of the OH loop the last few months with work and general life madness. In need of help with client suggestions for webcams. Are we still thinking Insta is the best overall? Brio 4K, still good for 100 or 150 range? Thanks. Good, Dave. Well, I'll start us off here. Uh, The Brio is actually like 178 or something on Amazon right now. And it's 250 sometimes, depending on where you're buying it from. So I don't think you're going to find a 4K Brio for 150. Insta is a terrific camera, and a lot of uh, accolades from this group because of its extra features and its sort of remote control device, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but that's still, I think, a four hundred dollar microphone, a uh, microphone camera. Sorry. Um, the other thing is that uh, uh, you know you can get a two hundred dollar camera from Elgato called the FaceCam, and it's the 1080 version is two hundred. If you want to go up to a pro version 4K, it's about four hundred. So. I'm thinking you're not going to find anything of the quality that we always recommend if you're going to be under $200. So maybe uh, Courtney has uh, other ideas, but uh, suggestions for clients is pretty much whatever they can afford, pay the best you can. It's almost like with a computer, buy what you can possibly get for the money you have and uh, make do with what you can get at that price.
2: Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the one uh, I think Alex is testing is this uh Obsbot uh AI powered tiny four K. Um I don't know whether because I think it interfaces with uh OT, uh Zoom, uh, Zoom's remote control, so uh, they're and OBS they're gonna uh test that to see if they can automate it to some degree. Uh but it's not under the 100 to $150 range. Uh, and I don't know if you can get the Brio, like he said, 4Ks. You might be able to find some Brio knockoffs that are 4K, but I'd be careful because a lot of the Chinese manufacturers that advertise 4K webcams, some of them are okay. Actually, I've got some, but, but none of them, a lot of them, you know, don't have autofocus. They uh, don't really have a 4K sensor. They have a 1080p sensor that they're upscaling to 4K, if you say 4K, so... Uh, I'd be careful if you're shopping the no-names <clears throat> out there. The Link360, uh, I mean the uh, 360 Link, um, Insta360 Link is uh, is a good alternative. I think they're under $300 now, so they are coming down a little bit in price. So that's an, another choice.
0: And I would say um, for that range, yeah, I think I agree as far as I think the Brio probably gets you the best camera in that price range um, if you wanted to add a couple extra features though um, you can get the huddle cam this is this doesn't say huddle cam it says avaya on it but it's branded in many different ways we found that the, um, the avaya does take the huddle cam firmware um, it's this camera has many iterations it's um, been branded in many different ways and marked up many different ways um, I believe the Huddle Cam tends to be around the $200 price range, but the Avaya-branded ones are, tend to be about $150. Um, I think I got this in an open box in, in B&H for like $130, and you can see them on eBay for a little, little cheaper pricing. Um, it has a 4K sensor. It doesn't output 4K. It, it outputs 1080p, but you can use the... Um, PTZ functionality with the um, remote control. So you can set different PTZ functions um, by zooming in on the screen and be able to access it from there. Uh, It works pretty nice. Um, Another feature that it has is it has the USB out. Um, There is a version you can get with NDI capability. and just has the network out. This uh, particular version has both uh, USB and um, HDMI. Out. So you can put this into your ATEM as well and switch it. So a pretty good uh, choice uh, for those
1: options. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I guess one last thought I had is you mentioned the USB connections. Um, some of the cams that we're recommending actually require USB-C. So you'd have to watch out if you're using an earlier laptop or a, an earlier PC, you might find you don't have USB-C 3 and you might need it to make the camera operate.
0: All right, let's go to our next question.
1: Our next one's from Guy Cochran. What do you think of the new Accession CME Pro with SDI? He's got a link there. Gartney?
2: Well, I looked at the link. uh, One thing, it shows a lot of people. It's basically a, I guess it's a device for interfacing iOS devices uh, to SDI um, uh, using a a, um, lightning connector. The um, I would worry about latency if you're going to use it as a uh, camera-mounted um, monitor, viewfinder, etc. Uh, if you're going to use a, a uh, you know an iPhone or an iPad, I'd worry about the latency because if you're a camera operator and there's you know anything more than a quarter of a, you know half a frame latency, uh, or you usually typically this stuff is two to four frame latency. That makes operating extremely difficult, so uh, uh, it might be good for, uh, because of all, it has uh, other effects built in and an app built in to, to let you do uh, um, focus highlighting and, uh, you know, false color and um, uh, different uh, waveform monitors. So that would be handy to have uh, just as a check monitor and the displays in some of the iPads are actually quite good, the IPS displays. But those are a $2,000 7-inch monitor, and you can certainly find cheaper out there that are just as good. So uh, kind of if you already have an iPad that you're not using, it could be a good thing as long as you can deal with the latency. Go ahead, Alexander.
3: Yeah, this looks like a really great product. I agree with Courtney about the latency. The problem with the the Lightning connector on the, on iOS devices at the moment is that they are limited to USB 2.0 bus speeds. So... If the iPhones had Thunderbolt on the other hand, the latency might <laughs> not be so much of an issue. What I'm very curious about and what I'm seeing on the, the marketing page here is it looks like you can use the iPhone as a monitor. I didn't know that this worked as a bi-directional, because I, I know with the HDMI Apple adapter, you can, you can send signal out of the iPhone. I wasn't even aware that you could actually send signal into the iPhone, so I just learned <laughs> something new that's pretty fascinating.
1: All right. We'll have to check that out. Let's go to our next question. Our next one is from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, What resources would you recommend for learning about starting your own business, business insurance, and marketing yourself? As someone on the spectrum, the nuances of business communication are something he'd like to learn. Good, Dave. Well, Douglas, I'd recommend you search for an an incubator, a a place where they do bring people on to the business. Uh, Many people, of course, have never had any training in business. And I know that some of these incubators have consultants on tap that can sit down with you, map out what it is you're thinking of doing, uh, work with you as to what you're going to have to research to figure out what the taxes are and what you're doing, how you hire people and how you get insurance and what you do to get investors to come toward you. So all of these things are sort of business practices that you get usually with experience or working as an understudy to someone else or having worked for someone else for a long time and think you might want to do it yourself. But I think where you're starting from is zero. And so you really should get to a place where they actually help people do this. And many of these places also know where access for startup funding is. So if you go to an incubator or find one in your region, then you could probably visit them. They'll consult with you. They'll also vet your idea to see if it's viable, what kind of market it is, or or whether it's going to be uh, just a local kind of business or maybe a regional or national business. But uh, these ideas come into these incubators, and you might also, when you're in an incubator, sometimes you get to meet other people who are starting up businesses and find that what you're doing collaborates with them. So these kind of places are sort of a mix of people with experts on hand who can give you all that advice about how to do your accounting and how to make sure people are being paid properly and what your banking situation is going to be. So all of those layers are business. And I've run a corporation now for 30 years, and uh, I had to learn it on the fly. But, of course, I had a mentor, who my father, who had run businesses himself. So he gave me great help. But the sense that you, you want to do this from the start-up. It's gonna be a difficult first step, but if you get it with the right people, they can help you a long way.
4: Go ahead, John. Also check your local community for resources like a Chamber of Commerce might have uh, people you can talk to who are similar businesses as you're looking for. Really understand what value you're adding to your customers and start learning things early like pricing, fixed versus variable costs and budgeting because you won't stay in business for long if your expenses are more than your revenues. That is. There's no, uh, there's no getting around the math of it. I agree with um,
0: suggestions that have been offered. It's helpful to um, observe or uh, mentor around someone that's doing the same thing that you're doing. Oftentimes, the nuances will be determined by the particular area uh, that you're heading into. And also, um, don't forget about the Office Hours resource. We have a whole day on Monday dedicated to the business of doing business. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next question comes from Craig McFarland in Boston, Massachusetts. When do you think we'll see the gap get tighter between typo, typical autocorrect spell check and chat GPT for email and messages?
3: Alexander. Well, I think chat GPT uh, chat is a fantastic uh, service. I think it's really neat. I do not want something like that in my email. The problem is privacy and security because... If you're going to have something that's cloud-based like that it's going to have to read your emails and is that something you really want until the day that that is proven to be completely entirely secure i don't know how you could do that now of course on the one one hand you've got companies like apple that has historically have done stuff on chip on device and if there was something like chat gpt that could be processed locally on the device i'd be all for it because It would give me a lot of value but until that could happen that's not something that i would want to have on my device okay john
5: microsoft's going to integrate chat chat gpt uh version 4 into every one of their applications and so it's going to be in it's going to be in outlook it's going to be in word both of those will have superior autocorrect spell and suggestions and i'm sure it'll be encrypted so Having it run on a local device, long way away from
2: that happening. Got Courtney. Um, it doesn't necessarily run on a local device, but it is encrypted. They, it's there now. It's uh, if you open your Edge browser and click on the little, the little B in the upper right hand corner, uh, you can open up uh, this little Bing thing, and and you can compose an email right there, uh, and you can you know tell it what you want to do and type in. a uh, the topics that you want to cover and or even paste in an email that you've composed and have it rewrite it. So uh, it's there now and it's called uh, uh, Microsoft is adding it to all of their their products, including Outlook uh, and Word. So it'll be in there called Copilot to help you compose your emails. Um, And I think uh, I don't think you're really sharing very much like you're not sharing your contact list or anything like that with uh, uh, with the public. It's just using the contents of what you type in or what you point to or the subjects you list to construct your emails. I wouldn't worry too much about the privacy.
0: Yeah, I think that particular intersection, Craig, that you um, outline uh, is kind of like um, in between like a spell check, which is ever-present, and then a personal assistant like Siri. I think Microsoft tried that before. It was called Clippy. It looks like you're trying to compose a resume. (laughs) So what what is old
1: uh, might become new again. Let's
0: go to our next question.
1: Our next question is from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada. He asks, with the move to USB-C and faster bus speeds on what likely will be the next iPhone, what kind of production level accessories would you like to see that would make a positive impact on your workflow? Good, Dave. I'm really encouraged by this, I've been using an iPad mini as a monitor and also I understand I can use it as a control surface for other apps. So the speed of transit is so fast now that the latency is almost zero. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of accessories they do come up with because of course it's going to be used as a webcam, Uh, they want to have this connect thing where your iPhone just hangs on your monitor and uh, becomes your webcam. Uh, that connectivity has to be pretty quick, too, and I hope it's uh, not wireless that you do, in fact, plug in your your uh, iPhone and get zero latency from that as well. Um, in terms of accessories I'm looking for, of course, reading SD cards or moving files in and out of devices is always enhanced by any kind of fast uh, transfer. Uh, and perhaps there's there's things I haven't even imagined yet that could go. Uh, with well, actually, I imagine uh, a microphone connection that's a little better and easier to use to get sound into an iPad or uh, an iPhone uh, from their faster speeds. So,
3: go ahead, Alexander. As I was writing this question, I I started to get angry about all the times I was trying to pull pro, large ProRes files off of this iPhone that I have, uh, you know, with 300, 400 gigabytes at USB2 bus speeds. It's, uh, it's not a pleasant time. So that's one thing I think that's really going to solve that problem for a lot of people. And I imagine the, the adoption of people in film production who maybe occasionally w- might wanna integrate some iPhone shot, would probably more likely want to use an iPhone if they could actually pull that stuff off the device. So I think that's going to be a huge thing. The other thing that I find interesting, and this kind of goes back to one of the previous questions about that um, that Aksun Simu uh, uh, device there. I think for video stuff specifically with that faster bus speeds, it's really going to be fascinating. I think it's going to open up a, a huge opportunity for a lot of companies to develop all sorts of really, really cool accessories. and. If I could have a device, if I could use an iPad with an XDR retina display as a monitor with zero latency, considering the color accuracy of these devices, I mean, you can't get a monitor that's more color accurate at that price point, right? As far as I know. So I think it's just going to be amazing once we start seeing these these accessories come out.
0: Yeah, I think um, my appreciation is just that the accessories that are already there, not having to have a um, lightning uh, adapter to carry around uh, would be very helpful. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next question comes from Plalock. No, it's from Paul Wallhouse in Austin, Texas. It's a simple question. Does NDI use a lot of bandwidth? Courtney.
2: Simple answer, yes. It uses 100 megabits per 1080p 30, and I think uh, 150 for 60 and 250 for 4K. Uh, so, you know, you're only going to be able to fit about 8 or so with overhead onto a gigabit Ethernet network. Um, so bear that in mind. And, of course, it doesn't go to the outside world at that speed. That's is only on a local area network. They do have a. I think uh, maybe one of our NDI experts here could could chime in on whether the they have a, a transport protocol that's designed for going out over the over the internet that is a compressed format, uh, but it has higher latency and uh, I'm not sure what the bit rate is on that. I think it may be up in the around uh, 10 to 20 megabits range using um, H.264 type compression, but typically figure on 100, 250 for uh, your 1080p and uh, 250 for 4K.
0: Yeah, absolutely. NDI Bridge um, offers that capability. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next one is from Tlaloc Lopez-Waterman in Dallas-Fort Worth. Is there any performance penalty to having both inputs and outputs on a single Blackmagic decklink?
2: I don't think so. Since those are configurable, uh, you can configure the four SDI uh, ports to be either inputs or outputs. The uh, processing um, hardware is on the card itself to just determine the directionality that it's hooked up. I don't think there's any uh, performance penalty by choosing inputs or outputs.
1: Let's go to our next question. This one's from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Rode says, our biggest product announcement ever. Sounds exciting. Thoughts as to what we might see? A mixer? A mic? He's got a link there. Courtney, you're acquainted with Rode?
2: Not what they're coming out with, though. Some of everything they say on their website, they're having 22 or 23 new announcements, new product announcements uh, in the next day or so. So we'll have to just kind of hold our breath and see. Of course, they do make a wide variety of uh As was said, microphones, mixers, accessories, all kinds of things. So uh, it could be updates, version twos of their existing mixers and microphones, etc. Or it may be something altogether new. I think with the explosion of the uh, work-from-home market that they may come out with some new tools that are designed specifically around that.
3: Alexander? Well, I'm sure there will be new hardware. One of the things that I have been hoping for ever since they released it with, with the RODECaster Pro 2, it certainly has enough processing power in there to do automix. And if they put in some version of Dugan automix in that thing, I think that would change everything because as far as I know, there's no company making a audio interface product like that, that's specifically built towards the podcasting workflow that actually has that built in. So that would really change everything.
1: Dave. I'm wondering if this biggest announcement is just the most products to talk about rather than, you know, big giant changes. And then I thought, you know, with increased improved supply lines, uh, maybe some of these products that are being announced at NAB are. Showing they re engineered things and they've made them better, and that they're now getting better supply and can now upgrade all their stuff because they couldn't before when there were no chips to be available.
2: And Courtney, more to add? Yeah, more. One thing on the wish list uh, I wish the w- Roadcaster Pro 2 had more inputs on it, more input preamps with only four. Uh, and they're for mono inputs. There's no stereo inputs other than through Bluetooth. Um, I would like to see some you know, more virtual inputs or some RCA inputs on that thing. Uh, and with the virtual mixer built in there, you could easily accommodate them if the hardware was there to process a couple of more inputs uh, via RCA or, or a quarter-inch plug for stereo inputs. That would be handy to have. Uh, so they may look at expanding the RODECaster Pro, and if you're going to put AutoMix in it, you better have more than four, just four inputs, four mono inputs. So um, I'd say more inputs on a RODECaster Pro, maybe they can add something like Dugan AutoMix to it, then six
3: inputs or eight inputs. That'd be great. Alexander? Yeah, I agree. I think a couple more inputs and outputs would be good actually specifically now that they have the in the new firmware that you can actually customize what is going out via the analog outputs with routing. I would love to have a second set of outputs just so I could have one output feed a specific mix and then one go somewhere else maybe to a camera and then another go to a pair of monitors somewhere else. So I think that would be hugely valuable. Well, you can do that with the headphone outputs now. So
2: you have four outputs. We have individual level controls on each. And just because it says they're headphone outputs, I use one of mine for something else. So you can use it for that.
0: Fantastic. We are in great expectation about what NAB will be announcing. Office Hours is hugely invested in covering that in our own unique coverage. You can find out about that in our website and on our daily email. Just a re- reminder that um, your voting on the questions is the determines what we spend time on and the order which. So feel free to add your questions and also vote on the questions there. Um, you can tag your questions PDF if you want them to be dedicated to our second hour topic on education. Let's go to our next
1: question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. I'm going to be upgrading from an iPhone 6S plus on AT&T 4G LTE to an iPhone 14 plus purchase part of Verizon promotional deal. What apps in our industry make the most of the iOS platform and how can I transfer my old apps? Alexander?
3: Well, it depends on what you want to do, but there there are a handful of apps that really stand out to me as truly pro level apps that leverage the processing power on these devices. LumaFusion as a video editor and of course now DaVinci Resolve on the iPad are absolutely incredible and of course Filmic Pro if you really want to take your iPhone and turn it into a camera where you have full manual control and have access to you know uh, focus peaking and RGB parade and all that stuff that you would kind of want. Um, Those are those three apps really stand out for me. As far as as far as transferring apps, there is the wireless device to device transfer where if both devices on the are on the same Wi Fi network, you can put them side by side and the devices will automatically take care of moving your data over from one device to another. People at the Apple Store can also help you do that. But it's very easy to set this up. Dave?
1: He took away my thunder. I was going to talk about that side-by-side transfer. It's magical. It's very easy to do. And one of your new camera looks at a, a screen on your old camera that is produced by the connection for upgrading and moving your stuff. And it just talks to the other machine without you having to do anything. And then you just say, give me that setup on this new uh, iPhone. Um, As to, Whether you keep some of those old apps, whether you add new ones for production purposes or for high work, uh, the iOS platform is now filled with all kinds of apps to support production. Everything from little uh, Slate apps to allow you to do timecode and Slate through uh, an iPad, uh, to all kinds of communication stuff, and and as Alex was talking about, some of the high-end control over a camera and remote control of other uh, functions. And some people are using their iPhones to control um, their their vMix and that sort of stuff. So there's all kinds of apps. Uh, It's growing all the time. It's really hard to recommend what you would use it for. So if you just examine what you want to do with your phone and then get the apps that are going to support that, then I think you'll find that you're throwing away some of the older apps because you have newer apps that do a better job or if you're just into note-taking or picture-taking or shooting routine videos and downloading them for editing on another machine, uh, everything you probably had on your 6S Plus is going to work on your new 14.
0: I know, Douglas, that you said that you're upgrading your phone, but you could very well have said you're upgrading your camera and you're upgrading your storage because as far as the processing power... It's not a whole lot um, that you're limited by as far as the processors of modern phones these days. Oftentimes, the reason for people updating is for the extra storage and for the cameras. And so I concur with my esteemed associates as far as camera apps. Uh, you might try uh, Filmic if you want to take advantage of that new hardware. Um, also in storage and be able to use storage capability, unfortunately, you'll have to get get it off the phone Uh with either the the lightning cable or using Wi-Fi, which I believe is actually quicker. So um, none of that. But yeah, um, looking at what you can do with some of the hardware of your camera and your storage, I think, um, might open some more possibilities for you. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next question is from Plalak Lopez Waterman in Dallas-Fort Worth. I need to mount a large camera on a catwalk pipe catwalk pipe is in theaters, it's way up high and it has lights on it usually. What might I buy to mount it safely? I can add pipe as needed, but I need the pipe to camera connection."
2: Courtney? Well, you start with your typical uh, C-clamp, which I'm sure Talalik is familiar with because it's used on all the bales of of, uh, lamps out there in the world. And then you look for a camera underslung bracket. Uh, something like this, designed to hang cameras underneath. Uh, you know, any anything that you need to hang the camera off of a, a jib arm or something, where it hangs down below instead of going up above. Um, so you can look at something like this. They're available in a variety of types, and then you just bolt uh your uh, this to your C clamp and put your camera on the bottom there. And it doesn't uh, it doesn't say what how big a camera or whether it's going to be panned and tilt, but uh, uh that's a start uh, so just look for camera underslung adapters they're kind of pricey and it depends on whether you not you can mount a head on top of that so the head is underneath there so you get pan tilt within that underslung adapter but the underslung adapter can be aimed as it is there let's get our next question
1: dave our next one is from paul Walhus in uh, austin texas if apple offered you a job would you choose austin or Silicon Valley, Silicon Hills, or Silicon Valley. Carney
2: I'd go Austin. Um, uh, already have a house there, so I could just move in. Uh, so, and there's more things to do in Austin than there is in the Silicon Valley. Also, the real estate's a little bit cheaper there right now. Uh, And you have a, you know, and if as soon as you get fired from Apple for revealing some secret of theirs, you can go to work at Tesla and build those uh, robots they're building in that new plant they're building in Austin.
4: John? I would choose California because it's closer to my family. Nothing more. Looks like it's a subjective decision.
0: Let's go to our next question.
1: From John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. Have you heard of the latest and greatest generative AI tool, Imagica? What would be the first app you create with it? Similar? Dave? I had a look at this. Um, it looks to me like they want to be Scotty on Star Trek, where you just talk to the computer and it does things for you. And I wish them all the best to do that. But as we all know, with dealing with Siri and all the other helpful uh, voice devices, uh, they don't always understand you, or your accent, or your colloquial use of phrases. And so it would be a little tricky to train me to speak to this thing the way they want me to. And I know this from some of the assistive technologies where they've tried to do voice control and voice activation, and the frustration of people who actually lose their voice over time for having to speak in a certain way, and and contain it to what the machine can offer. So. If brain AI is doing their thing uh, correctly, and it, and it makes it so easy to talk to your computer or your mobile device and get it to do things for you without you having to scroll through your apps and launch something or get pages ready to enter text, well then it's going to be innovative and it's going to make uh, for very noisy rooms with people talking to their phones.
4: John? It's interesting because the last several months, i um, like on LinkedIn, especially it's been nothing but how to use ChatGPT to do your job. Um, and over the last week, it's a whole bunch of new tools that are how to use this new tool that basically summarizes all the other GPT tools out there. Um, in this particular one, what I found interesting is it looked like a way to replace some of the um, low code tools to like create your own databases, essentially like a file maker or a Power apps from Microsoft. And um, you can basically give it a query and it will give a full interface and a backend and build the backend to create your own custom apps. And I just thought it was a really interesting idea. Um, and I hope something like that works someday. Courtney?
2: I'm not sure it does anything different uh, that you can't already do with chat. You know, I have chat GPT for uh, as a, you know, I just made a button on my phone it opens up a uh, Chrome browser with ChatGPT in it, and uh, when you click on the input box, I use the Google's voice input. Just click on the microphone, so I can just talk to it and enter my prompt uh, to what I wanted to do uh, verbally. And it uses Google's voice recognition, so it's really pretty good at understanding what I'm doing, what I'm saying to it, um, and then it goes. And so uh, whether or not you have it read it back out, I guess you could turn on accessibility to have it read all of its output back and have it uh, report back verbally without ever having to touch the machine itself. So I think you can already do that with other applications uh, built into a phone or a tablet. So I'm not sure what different this is doing. I haven't tried it.
0: Yeah, it should be interesting to see... um who can position himself as the one app to rule them all. Yeah. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next one comes from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. Can you walk through the math you would use to determine bandwidth requirements? If you have a project that requires 10 720p feeds from Zoom ISO to be sent to vMix as NDI and will be streamed at 1080p30, What considerations do I need to have in mind?
3: Alexander? Well, I wish I could help you more because I was never good at math. Uh, One thing I will say, uh, and I have very limited, limited experience with NDI, but as someone who's done live streaming and has dabbled a little bit with networking, in my experience, the first thing that made the biggest difference as far as stability is VLANs and just isolating things, things that are important um, you don't want other stuff on your network really messing with this stuff, especially if you're do- going to do production with NDI. So that's the first thing that I would su- suggest. And if that's not something you really want to spend time trying to figure out, maybe maybe hiring someone who can really help you out, um, just sort of um, analyze your network and figure out what you need to do to make that stuff stable. But that that is some- the first thing that I would do.
5: John? We did. There was a question on bandwidth earlier this week, and and according to the the Zoom specs on the support page, and then we can comp- compare and contrast that versus what Alex and uh, Jeffrey were seeing was double what their standards were there. So take those standards from Zoom and double it, and that's kind of what you should see.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And it would depend too upon which transport method you are using, what latency you require and the compression uh, that you're using to send these streams might well factor into that math as well. Let's go into our next question.
1: Our next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What do you charge per hour for video tech consultations? Thanks. Dave, uh, how much can I hire you for? Well, That's a very interesting question because it brings into question a lot of things about what you do as marketing or promoting yourself as well as trying to secure a yes in a deal. And oftentimes people will bring in consultants to talk to them with really no intention of doing anything yet. So you have to feel them out. You sit in the room with them, you answer all their questions, you make sure they understand what services you offer and what they will cost. But the first consultation I usually have is a probe. That is, I'm there to see if I want to do their job, and if it's impossible to do their job, I kind of tell them that. And if it's something that's in my field of work and something I've done before, then I can tell them, you know, what kind of options they have for making it cost effective. But the second visit is where I would charge. So I warn them that if you want to hire me, my next visit will be a billable visit. and. That will be a serious and detailed conversation so i'm uh i'm 350 a day uh my day is four hour minimum so if you only have a two hour meeting with me i bill you for four but those are real consultations they're not just vague discussions about what might possibly happen or whether we did this job would you be able to handle it it's more a case of okay we've decided we're doing this job and now we want to know what you would do for us and how much it would charge so that's the level of, of thing i would think about when you know, talking about charging per hour somebody needs technical support and information they don't know who to get it from they're asking you to come to the table and say something about what you can offer it's kind of unfair for them to have to pay to find out they don't need you but if they do like you and they've talked to three or four other people and they decide you're the guy who knows the most or can offer the services then you're the person who can be billable And that's just a reality. I I haven't really lost any jobs uh, because I build on the second hour, because then they know I'm serious. Uh, The second time I visit means that we're probably going to get to a contract real soon. Now, sometimes I had to make, and in one one case with the Defense Department, uh, I had four different people talk to me before they decided I was the guy. Now, I'm not going to be able to bill the government until they actually sign a contract. So in those cases, you know what you're getting when you go in. Uh, Another time with the provincial government, uh, I warned them that actually I'm not going to meet with you unless you're really serious about doing this contract. And then it was three months of contract negotiation. Now you can't bill for that either, but you know at the end of the line you're going to come to an agreement that is going to pay you back for all that, you know, back and forth time with various people in various departments to figure out what it is they want and what you're going to provide for them. So billing is a tricky thing that way, because they have to agree to be paying you before you provide the service. And if you're going to just explore with them or brainstorm or blue sky with them, well, they can buy me a donut and a cup of coffee and I'll go all, all crazy on them as to what's possible. But when it comes down to actually committing me to time work and hiring people and doing the work, it's going to be billable even for all my meetings.
0: Yeah, I agree with your statements there, um, or sentiments, Dave. Um, If someone is hiring you directly for a consultation, then you uh, will have an hourly rate. But um, if it's associated with uh, another service that you're adding support on, you may want to budget your time as far as how much or how long you'll support them in those services that are connected to other things. Free is an option too, uh, depending on your availability, as far as giving consultations to former or potential clients. That way, when they do have a commitment, they may consider you for work.
1: Let's go to our next question. Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Many broadcasters and industry groups like the NAB have been concerned about the wireless industry using C-band spectrum for 5G and the loss of reliability when using internet-based transport. Wouldn't network-based distribution be much cheaper? Courtney?
2: Well, it's hard to string that cable up to the satellite. Uh, C band is used primarily, of course, for satellite communications. Um, and there's a huge existing network. You know, think of DirecTV, think of uh, you know their their uplinks are probably C band, and uh, a lot of the networks use uh, backends that are C band. They have control over those private networks. Sending it over the internet might be a security issue, or sending it over uh, terrestrial-based uh, networking maybe a problem you're not going to get the speeds as well that you can get in c-band and the interference probably they're in slightly different uh, frequency ranges i think uh, c-band signals are 3.4 gigahertz to 4.2 and 5g is 5.85 to 6.425 so they're in different frequency bands, and since the satellite dishes are pretty large, C-band satellite dishes are pretty large, which you see at satellite farms, and they're pointed up, not at the ground, you can eliminate a lot of the uh, the 5G interference by putting up uh, screens on either side of your dish to prevent any uh, leakage from the local hills, stuff uh, in 5G transmitters around to eliminate some of the noise. And um, and since you're working in a different frequency band, you might have to increase the sensitivity of your LNBs, your your amplifiers on the on the C band satellites. But I don't think it's going to be that huge a problem. They are worried about it, but uh, I guess until we get 5G completely uh, deployed everywhere, uh, which is makes it pretty hard because it's pretty low power and pretty short distance range, uh, we we won't really know.
1: Next question. The next one comes to us from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. Neumann claims that their new MT48 audio interface is the first audio interface in its class that's able to capture the full dynamic range of Neumann microphones. Is that a meaningful claim or marketing speak?
3: Alexander. It's marketing speak. The first time, when I read this, my first thought was and How about you quantify that? What does that actually translate into as far as results? This isn't the first interface to have a really, really high dynamic range. The MT48 claims 138 dB dynamic range. Is that high? Yes, of course, that's very, very high. That's a good spec. And the thing, I just don't understand where they're going with that. Uh, This has never been something that's been at the forefront of my mind. I always look for, for good specs in an, audio interface of course you want high dynamic range but what does that translate to in terms of results for recording a band yeah i mean it's just it's silly courtney
2: yeah if you look at the maximum spl which is sound pressure level that you most microphones operate it's below 120 usually so um you're not you know most microphones will bottom out before uh, an audio interface is overload their audio interface is overloaded so yeah being able to transfer that distortion accurately would be you know their their marketing claim i guess uh so i don't think it makes that big a difference the dynamic range you know remember 120 db is the threshold of pain for <laughs> sound levels so Uh, You don't need that high a dynamic range for a microphone because it's not capturing usually accurately anything above, you know, around 100. So, Dave?
1: I'm kind of captured by the phrase, when used, in its class. Um, It always makes me wonder what classes exist and which one do they fit into. And it's a, a claim rather than a statement of fact. So... Whatever class they think they're in, they may be the best at it, but I have no idea what the classes are. So,
0: Absolutely. Our producers are in a class of their own, and you can vote on the questions and um, be able to enter your own questions. If you want to enter something for our second hour topic, use the McCona tag PDF. All right, Dave, let's go to our next question.
1: Our next one is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Is the humanoid AI robot that's coming out of a large factory in Austin blow away cars and rockets in importance to mankind and parallel AI in importance to mankind? Ed Courtney?
2: Not for a long time. I think these humanoid robots are going to be like your clumsy little brother. You know, it's uh, for a long time. They're not going to be able to really do intricate, uh, you know, they might have repeatability, but... uh, uh, Musk propon you know, proposes the fact that you know their um, the one thing that industrial robots don't have is is the freedom to move around, uh, and these would solve that problem. But once you give them feet to move around on and balance to have to deal with to to move that thing around on two feet, precision goes out kind of goes out the window. So you can't have precise pick and place robots or robots that are operating on an assembly line which you know have to put something precisely in a specific you know to a 10th of a millimeter very carefully because you'd have to incorporate machine vision plus balance plus all that stuff so uh, i don't think it's going to be that big a case unless you use the robots to build other robots and then we got to be be very very careful well
0: what if they just hold on to something while they're picking in place and you know, mooring your mooring yourself down, you know, strap yourself in. Yeah. Go, ahead, John.
4: Yeah, I saw a video of a twenty million dollar robot that stacked nine boxes successfully on a conveyor belt. So it's the future is here, I suppose. The idea that robots should be like humans in shape and form assumes that robots are going to operate in the same locations and areas that humans operate and the opposite is going to happen is so we're going to change how our factories are shaped to fit robots that are autonomous and can move around and replace humans um, as negative as that sounds but the reason why our factories are the shape they are now is because we have humans walking around in them and we'll just build factories where robots drive instead and it'll be much much more efficient
0: i have to admit that i am curious as to why more first principles thinking hasn't been applied to the fat form factor of robots, and I think you make a good point, John, as far as the application in which we use them. Now, of course, if you want to interface with a robot, maybe the most comforting thing for a human to see is a humanoid figure. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next one comes from Brody Hefner in New York City. NAB offered a pre-conference workshop on small to no crew production for corporate, in-house, and remote events. What is a no crew production?
0: Dave, were you on that
1: no crew production? I have been a no crew production for years, and I've worked with very small crews most of my life, but uh, in later, closer to retirement, I was a contractor to a California company who wanted shots, uh, stuff shot in Edmonton whenever they needed it. So they would email me, are you available? And i go out and shoot this thing for them. And then I would edit it and send it back to San Francisco. Now, I didn't need a crew because I was inventing the shoot and I was following a sort of formula and I was doing it. I do my own lighting and I do my own audio and I coach people as to how to appear on camera. I mean, I had to be the director, the producer, the audio guy, uh, the crew member, and the boom holder. So all of those things can be done by a single individual. And actually, a lot of news, uh, 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 news channels and news stations have one-man crews who go out with a reporter. Now, the reporter often shoots their own video. They set up a tripod, they frame everything up, and then they turn on the camera, walk in front of it, and give their delivery. And many of them are shooting their own B-roll, too. So it is becoming a one-man show thing, and that is a result of how small and light the cameras are, how capable they are, because the camera I was using more recently is more capable than any camera I've ever used in the past, and it's light as a feather to use. And it gets into small places. So I think they're talking about whether it's a broadcast thing now to just have no crew and let a person produce with everything on hand. And as we're seeing now, even here with office hours, we're finding that we're repurposing a lot of things to different uses. Um, and I've I've been able to repurpose a lot of my equipment and my tripods and lamps and my stands and stuff around here from all my years of of video production. But I also used all of those things when I was on the field shooting people doing things and, and I had to send them back to California. So I think that's the future. And in a lot of ways, the cameras are gonna have their own lights. The microphones are gonna be wireless to the camera automatically. Uh, you're gonna be able to pick up things in almost 3D. Uh, everything is going to be more uh, compact easier and lightweight and therefore you don't need a five person crew now the other side of things is that uh, two or three of the major channels in my town are all unionized and it's mandated that there will be at least three people on a news crew so they would take people out to be on a news crew and essentially they did one thing and were part of the production so if you want to cut your costs and get everything down to the bone then you just hire the one cameraman who is also the narrator, who is also the editor, who can also deliver the finished product. One-man bands are probably the future, and it's not a bad thing, but it's all about creativity, as you hear on Office Hours all the time. Courtney?
2: Yeah, it's moving this way. And as a member of the union, I know we fought uh, to try and, when cam when camcorders came about and where it was no longer necessary to have a recordist dragging an over-the-shoulder video recorder around with him that was connected to the cameraman, um, they they petitioned the producer's petition for the ability to do a one-man video crew along with the correspondent. So you'd have the correspondent, and then one guy would handle the camera and the audio both. Uh, so they now made that concession. So that's as close to a no-man crew as you get with uh, with having a crew at all. And now a lot of correspondents, as was said by David, that uh, go out with just a camcorder or just a you know a small handheld camcorder, and some of them even do reporting with their phone these days. So you see uh, the scrum of uh, reporters surrounding somebody as they come out of the courthouse or something, and a lot of them are just holding up phones. A lot of those are radio reporters or portable recorders. They're doing their own recording, they're doing their own editing, and they're filing their reports You know, within a half hour of something of that news event happening. Um, when they go sit at a table at a Starbucks somewhere and upload that, uh, edit and then upload their story, uh, it's certainly possible to do with a no-crew Uh, setup Um, and like I said the uh, the quality of the typical phone these days is better than a lot of the production cameras we were using 10 years ago to do news gathering so uh, it's certainly possible
1: let's go to our next question this next question is from Douglas Carmichael in the NAB FCC filing I'm not sure what that is. They mentioned that consumer benefits like 4K and HDR programming would be stifled if too much C-band spectrum was reallocated. 4K seems to have a low barrier to entry, but wouldn't an HDR pipeline be much more expensive?
0: As far as the cost of HDR or 4K, your costs are going to vary depending on your Execution and implementation of those two things. Uh, Typically if you want a higher resolution like 4k Of course, you've got to have a higher resolution sensor in order to capture that data And also you have to have the bandwidth to be able to transport that data. So all of your transports Handling storage those have to be inflated to be able to accommodate uh, that higher bandwidth HDR is uh, similar in requirements as far as having a higher bit depth and so you have to have the, uh, uh, the equipment that would accommodate that. It depends on just how, how much uh, processing you'd need and also, you know, how much human um, assistance that you need as far as uh, someone that's tuning that HDR signal. Adding extra resolution typically doesn't require a lot of uh, supervising as far as people is concerned. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next one's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What city would you like to see host NAB in the future?
5: Uh, John? Uh, no city. I want it to be virtual. That's it.
0: And that's uh, spoken from someone with home field advantage. Courtney?
2: Well, of course. Uh, I'd like to see LA host NAB in the future because a lot of the broadcasters are located here. So. Uh, they wouldn't have to travel. And you could see examples of uh, broadcast stations or production studios. Uh, they're all in place here. So, um, and each of those could host meetings and instructional programs. So I think that would be a great source for, for uh, NAB to be in. So the answer is close.
0: Next question.
1: Our next one comes from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, B.C. As I'm doing more projects as a side hustle, trying to turn it into a decent supplemental income to my full-time job, I always feel bad about charging a minimum hourly rate. How do I get over this? Dave? Well, my advice to you is to just pretend it's a big-time job and it's your full-time job. I charge what I need so if i need more money <laughs> I've got to replace my car or something well then i'm going to charge more if i feel it's a charity a nonprofit, or somebody that just needs a helping hand then i'll charge less the hourly rate is your hourly rate because if you change it and other people talk to each other then you're going to get people saying well no your rate is this isn't it and then you're you're having to explain why it's different for everyone i also have a feature that i had implemented way back when I started, and it had to do with the nuisance a person will be. Uh, maybe Courtney can comment on this as well. Sometimes you get a client who's really enthusiastic, they want to do the job, and then they become a nuisance, and they want to change this, and they want to change that, and they're, they're trying to get the scope to creep out, and you're trying to restrain them and say, well, that's going to cost you more and all this stuff, and they're pleading with you, well, you know, I just had this idea, I want them. And you're, you're spending more time dealing with that person than getting the job done. Well, I've done enough of those that I thought, you know, I'm going to put a percentage onto the proposal, which includes a nuisance fee. They don't know about it, but it's in my proposal. And if they still want to work with me with that price, that's great, because then they're paying for that nuisance value. If they turn out not to be a nuisance, if my projection on them was wrong that they're just going to be a nuisance, I just give them a discount when I finally bill. And they're very surprised to find that there was a reduction in the cost because we got the job done nice and efficient, and it was very smoothly planned, and everything went well, and you weren't a nuisance to me. So I think that's an option for you is to bill on the hourly rate that you usually charge. And then if people are really fun to work with, they did a great job, and they helped you make it more efficient and more profitable, well, then give them a kickback.
4: John? So that's what a convenience fee is i guess um i would say if you're adding more value than you cost people will be satisfied and be
2: you should be satisfied with that too courtney all good points And th- this conversation comes up a lot of times when people say what about building half days can you give me a half day off your daily rate because we're only going to be shooting for for a two hours? we only have the talent for an hour and a half so we're only going to be shooting for two hours most I uh, Can not give me a half-day rate? And I will give a half-day rate, but it's not near one half of my daily rate because the thing you have to consider is if you agree to book that job or book a job that's a short day or a half-day or something uh, shy of what you'd normally get for a day's pay with another job, another full-paying job, you got to consider that if you book that job, you may have to turn down another job that would have paid your full-day rate. So you may end up losing money taking that half day job uh, because you could have worked that full day job and gotten your full rate for that day and you can't book your your equipment and yourself out on two two half days at the same time usually I tell people because a half day schedule never stays really a half day you know it's like oh we just need one more shot you know and you can't be late to your other job if the the times uh, get anywhere near each other so I usually say you know well I'll give you a reduction it'll be about a 20% reduction over my full day rate, or maybe a 25% reduction over my full day rate. But it's never half, uh, because you have to take into account the fact that to, to book that half day, you have to be prepared to lose a full day.
0: Maybe you could just take all the half days and put them together. Let's go to our next question.
1: Our next one is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. When you upgrade your gear, do you sell the old gear or keep it in your kit if you think you can still make more money on it than you would get selling it?
0: What do you do, Dave?
1: Well, the funny thing is, is that I don't have a lot of gear outside of my lighting and my camera. If I need microphone systems, I rent them. If I need more lighting, I rent it. And if I need more gear or tripods or anything else, yeah, I don't own it. I'd like to do the work With the profit in mind and if i'm laying out thousands of dollars for a camera that means i've got to do lots and lots and lots of work to pay it back and i find that renting a camera means that i can go a few months without having to shoot anything and i'm not sitting on an expensive camera that i bought when I need to upgrade to a new thing, uh, I get the best one out of the rental shop. I don't have to worry about buying a new camera every three or four years when they come up with new features and better lenses and all the stuff. So I think in terms of you know what I did in terms of my company was to just have some basics that I could do very quickly, this run and gun kind of thing. And then if I am going to get into serious production, I hire people and I rent stuff and I don't have to resell it at the end.
2: Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I never sell anything, unfortunately, because it's too much trouble for me. And I like to keep stuff around for backup, or if it's uh, our, you know, if I have stuff that one thing is broken on and I bought a new one, I use it for replacement parts uh, so I can steal parts from that or put them with the new ones, or I use them as destructo cams or destructo, you know, anytime you got to put something in jeopardy, use the old equipment that you would have sold. And then if it gets damaged, you can file an insurance claim on it and, you know, then buy some new equipment. So that's what I do.
0: Fantastic. Also to keep in mind is that um, having a backup is great. If you value that as a backup, that might be helpful. But keep in mind that um, storing things is not free. Uh, You've got to find it, find a place for it. Also, you pay a complexity penalty. The more things you keep around, the harder it is to find the things that you might be reaching for uh, uh, more often. So keep that in mind as far as how many of the old iterations of things you'd like to keep around. Well, we'd like to keep you around for our second hour. Um, We're going to be moving into our second hour education on PDFs, and you can put your questions in with the MukanaTag PDF. Just a couple of announcements before we hand things over to John to host our second hour. Uh, You'll notice our new schedule uh, for next week is out. We're very focused on our NAB coverage. You'll see how you can participate and how you can view our special coverage there at NAB. Many of the topics that uh, we have uh, have been uh, focused on the NAB for our different verticals, audio, video, business, Etc. So please uh, check it out. You can uh, sign up at officehours.global and join us. If you're not receiving your daily email and seeing other ways in which you can contribute. Another way that you can contribute is that we have a um, one particular thing we made an adjustment on. I we'll say we have a was the reader's workshop. We're changing that to the show workshop, a little bit of a mock show where you can rehearse being a panelist or a reader or the different, uh, the different roles that help the show, even some of the back-end roles of managing questions, et cetera. So if you're interested, check out our daily email on our website, John, what do we have for our education hour?
4: Thanks, Josh. Today we're going to be discussing the use of PDFs in education. We all use them every day and PDFs are the de facto standard for digitizing documents. Why is that? And how can you, our producers get the most out of them? Our expert guest today is Dave Troutman, oftentimes the host, and we'll be walking through some of our the lesser known features of PDFs, and he'll be able to answer your questions after you put them into our Mukana chat. So Dave, do you want to get us started?
1: Yeah, I'd like to start with a story. Um, it was back in the mid nineties. I was with a support group, uh, technical support for an academic technology center, and we had Uh, academics come to us on Friday where we would do uh, an afternoon of show-and-tell, things we've been working on, stuff we've discovered, and technology we thought you should understand. And it was in the efforts to try and help academics learn more about how to use these technologies and multimedia in their classrooms. So I was the video guy, but I also was um, a document guy. And uh, another partner in the group was the print expert taught me a heck of a lot about printing. And, um, I was asked to do a presentation on how they might use PDF in the classroom. So I got up in front of everyone on, the, and I did the hand wave and the talk and my slideshow went on and they were all watching and listening and learning. And when it was over, uh, a fellow sidled up to me afterwards and he said, so I really liked your slideshow. That was really good. What did you use for that? Uh, was that PowerPoint? And I said, no, that was PDF. It was full screen and it worked just like a slideshow. And that was a feature nobody knew PDF could do, which was to present. So PDFs can do that. But PDFs, their history is that they're a portable document format, which Adobe created to help people with pre-press. Pre-press is the process whereby you set up a document in order for it to go through a certain kind of press process. Many of these press processes are rather unique and difficult and Different machinery has been invented over the centuries to do printing, and uh, we were finding that with electronic documents, uh, some of these presses were having trouble with handling the imaging. So PDF uh, spawned a number of uh, different readers. That allowed you to on any of the computer platforms at the time and this goes back to linux and some other uh, long dead platforms pdfs were supposed to be able to just be able to give you the same document on any screen and they really succeeded in doing this back in 2007 they started uh, spawning these these uh, versions that would be able to work on any platform pdfs uh, were also a candidate for internet. That is, before HTML became popular, uh, Adobe was working on what they called streaming a PDF, where you wouldn't load the whole PDF, you would just load each page as you watch it. And as you went from page to page, it would just unload the page you read and load the page that's coming up next. And you wouldn't notice in the middle of it that you're reading a PDF, you'd just be getting a web page. Well, this is before the web actually took things over. Uh, Before the web, we had things like Gopher, um and um, uh, other uh, text platforms and adobe if they'd been clever could have actually opened up their code at that time and made it possible for people to design things that would run on the internet more um, narrow bandwidth and that was the problem they had of course because if you make a large pdf document and it's three megabytes and you have a dial-up internet then you're not going to get that document it's going to be frustrating and even though it's going to be readable on your, your desktop, it's not going to be uh, the kind of thing you'd want to ship and spend time with, and it's a waster. So the idea of streaming these things was possible, that you would just put up a browser, and then you'd log into a PDF, and then you'd just read it on your screen only one page at a time, and it was an interesting idea. So Dave, I, I have, you have a course. question on that.
4: Yeah, go ahead. Um, so the sounds like the main reason why PDFs were invented was to have that... Um, cl- cross-platform ability to see the same thing no matter what device you're using. Is that is that correct, first of all?
1: Exactly, yes.
4: So why is it that um, Adobe was able to accomplish that, but nobody else was?
1: Adobe was in the print field uh, at the time. They've gotten into the multimedia by acquiring uh, macromedia and other people. Uh, but they were actually just trying to make printing work on on digital platforms. So Macintosh, of course, gave you all kinds of fonts. They gave you all kinds of quick draw uh, layouts. And then the fonts were always a problem because the fonts were fairly standard, uh, but there were a lot of experiments going on. And there was a lot of fights between providers on platforms like Microsoft and uh I'm trying to think of the other company that they competed with, uh, to be able to give people the same font on every layout. And of course, anyone who's opened a a Word document in Pages or a Pages document in Word uh, is finding that the format they came in with is not reproduced by the other because they didn't have the right font so a pdf embeds the fonts right in the document and this gave it its cross-platform advantage is that you not nice. only sent the data but you sent the font to play it out with and the format to to uh, have all the margins and everything correct
4: i see and courtney i, I see you have a handout yeah i was just going to
2: amplify on that yeah it, it had mainly to do with the printed version of something not necessarily the way it appears on screen but but the way it appears on screen is more WYSIWYG, so that it appears on screen exactly how it will be printed out, and so I think the, the thing that uh, PDF did is it coordinated the uh, visual display with the printed display to make sure that it would match. And the difference in font metrics, and back then, fonts had to be licensed. You know, you had to pay a license for those uh, new Times Roman fonts that were inside your laser jet printer, uh, and if you wanted to use that. To display on your screen, you had to pay another license fee. So it was a means of coordinating the license fees and the fonts to make them available on both print and the screen so that they would look the same and the font metrics would work out so that they, all the kerning and everything that goes into how many letters can appear on a line, et cetera, you know, it was very difficult to work all that stuff out as each different font from each different manufacturer from each different license had kerning differently, had... The metrics of each font were differently depending upon the resolution of the printer and the resolution of your screen and going back and forth between those two. And that was a lot to work out, and Adobe did the uh, work uh, to make that uh, portable so that it would look the same and print the same on a variety of different printers and a variety of different screens and resolutions of computers.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And the the... the innovation they gave us was called PostScript. Postscript was a way to describe a page mathematically. And that allowed for the very high resolution fonts and the very high resolution imagery production that comes with the PDF, because Postscript was then adopted by all the printing companies, all the electronic printing companies, the ones who do mechanical printing, they adopted that too eventually. But yeah, it came up first with the Postscript standard. And then, when everybody signed onto that license, it standardized the way everybody could print. And then, for course, screens. Apple had a thing called QuickDraw for their graphics on the screen. And it was pretty effective. It's pretty heavy load on the CPU and uh, graphics uh, chips that were in the CPU. But they adopted uh, PostScript as their face uh, right on the screen and in their print environment. And they called it Quartz. So if you got a Mac in the uh, late 90s, you were s- suddenly, uh, you were using Quickdraw. And then in the 2000s, when the uh, Mac 10 came out, it adopted uh, PDF as a standard within the operating system using its courts interpretation of PostScript.
4: Great. So that's the Any history of PDFs. Um, are we ready to jump into questions? Or did you want try to try a few questions.
1: Great. And many of the things I've got here to talk about will probably come up in the questions. And if they don't, I'll bring them to the talk conversation.
4: All right. What's our first question? And
0: our first question comes from Alexander Knight from Vancouver, for British Canada, British Columbia, Canada. I haven't explored Windows 11 as I'm primarily a Mac user, but historically, Windows has not had a native PDF reader creator. Why is it that Microsoft hasn't put something similar to Preview into Windows? Is it licensing related? Go ahead, Courtney.
2: Yes. There was a license required uh, to use um, the PDF format or to decode PDF or or to encode or create PDF. A PDF printer was even more rare on the Microsoft platform. They do now have... uh, uh, PDF viewers built into Windows 10 and Windows 11. It uses the Edge browser usually or the Chrome browser. You can designate uh, who you want to display your PDFs or to be your, your default PDF viewer. So if you just drag a PDF file and drop it on your browser, it'll display uh, normally. And you it can even display uh, PDF forms that are fillable and saveable. Uh, but to encode it back into PDF after you change it. You know that was another license fee, so that's typically why uh, Microsoft uh, didn't incorporate it. They didn't want to compete. Also, Adobe didn't want to. You know, wanted to sell sell their uh, um, what was the name of their their uh, program to create PDFs. So that was a very Not stiff license. That's-
1: Acrobat, they wanted Acrobat, to sell,
2: yeah. Acrobat, yeah. And that was a pretty expensive program. It was about a $600 program if you bought it on a run on Windows license for Acrobat to create PDFs. Uh, so for a long time, you couldn't get anything unless there were a couple of people that was cute PDF. There were a number of people that reverse engineered the PDF format and made creators that they sold for you know a third to half to a lot less than the cost of Acrobat. Uh, but that was one of the hindrances of building it into uh, to, uh, uh, Windows as a printout format, in other words, print to PDF. It's now incorporated directly into Windows 11, though. You can print to PDF. So either they bought the license or maybe the license expired, maybe that uh, patent expired.
3: Interesting. Alex? Yeah, and Courtney, so just so I understand correctly, so if I'm on a Windows 11 operating system, if someone emails me a document, let's say a PDF to sign, can I actually sign that in the reader or do I need to get Acrobat?
2: Uh, usually you can sign it in the reader these days and uh, save it back out and uh, send it off to them. They allow for that. With a, however, how you sign it is is questionable well, you might have to have a signature file that you paste in there there's something that's called a, uh, a PDF signature which is you agree on a bitmap to use and it authorizes it so it is can create an authorized signature to mm-hmm. show that it, it it will pass legal muster down the line that somebody couldn't just paste pasted any signature in there as a image files
4: Well, I'll say most most industries I've worked with all use DocuSign uh, for that purposes on PC, just because it's a built-in service that's, I think, auditable and trackable. But go ahead, Dave.
1: Yeah, there's a little bit of computer history in here as well, because uh, Windows resisted all other formats than Word because they felt it was superior and they wanted to dominate. And when Adobe's PDF format was adopted by Mac, uh, it became integrated into all the documents. So any Mac app could read a PDF, but the PDF reader of course is Preview, which is functionally uh, the same as Acrobat Reader. The features that Apple put into um, Preview then pushed uh, Adobe to build other features and uh, they were leaving Microsoft in the dust. And in the, actually in the mid 2000s, uh, I was actually helping people overcome Microsoft's poor implementation of making a PDF from a Word document, and it would corrupt the file quite a bit, and then it wouldn't be PostScript compatible. And at that point, it's not printable on a PostScript printer. So they f- they stumbled out of the gate, and they were so focused on trying to maintain their dominance with Word that they tried to push back on, on PDF, and they failed because PDF just outstrived outstep them. So now yes, as as Courtney says, they've integrated more, they've licensed the open Postscript, and that was opened up in 2007, uh, so that anybody could build stuff uh, which would read or work with PDFs, and DocuSign is one of those. There's a host of iOS apps and and iPad apps that allow you to sign a document with a, a pen. Um, and there's the registered thing. Uh, these are the registered signatures that Courtney was talking about. Adobe will allow companies and, and other people to store various people's authorized signatures so that uh, an assistant or a receptionist can sign things for them and, and have them authorized by that person. So uh, those kind of things came, uh, came up way before Windows decided to, you know, stand back and accept the future.
4: What's our next question?
0: Next question comes from John Snyder of Reno, Nevada. What's the best way to update and manage versions of PDFs?
4: What I mean by that, Dave, is um, we store a lot of documents as PDF, typically when we don't want someone else to be able to change it, or we can see that someone else changed it. The problem is, if you need to make a small edit or change, it seems like the only way that I can find is to just completely replace the file which breaks any previous links to that so I'm wondering if you know of a better way or if we're doing the best we can
1: okay two sides to this question so that's I'll address that one second the first one is of course update your reader app so whatever you're using and Adobe is a free reader Uh, Acrobat reader is available for anyone to download and it actually has an update feature in it it kind of warns you that there's a new version of PDF and we're adding it to the reader and you can read uh, you'll get some of these documents that say your version can't read and it's sort of a blank screen saying, you know, upgrade your reader. So in those instances, uh, and in terms of Apple's preview app, some PDFs show that. And when you open them in preview, they just come up kind of blank and say, this is not readable. And then you go to Adobe Reader and it is readable. And also, if it's a form, you can fill it in. The other side is is when you want to change the document itself. And that is tricky, because yes, making the document over again and all of its comments and anything else you are working with uh, is a real chore, and keeping versions straight is a real chore. The easiest way to do this is to use the Acrobat uh, Pro uh, document management tool. Uh, Acrobat Pro is, again, as Courtney says, it was very expensive, but now it comes with the Creative Suite. So Adobe's creative suite includes Acrobat, and Acrobat Pro is what you would use to take somebody else's PDF, for instance, and if you're authorized to make changes to it, and that's part of the security layer in PDF, which I'll get to later, then anybody who's authorized to change that PDF can use Pro and not keep it on their desktop. They could just use it out of the cloud and then go back and and operate. So. I use Acrobat Pro to make changes on other people's PDFs and I share them with other uh, people uh, in business who are hiring me to work with big documents. Uh, I've had to get them to upgrade their readers from the free version of something they got on the net to using Acrobat Reader in order for it to conform properly with what we're building. Not all the readers have features that are supported. So for instance, Acrobat can have 3D objects, sound, and video. Not all readers are going to read those things. So even Preview from Apple doesn't allow me to put a video in a PDF. That is, it comes up as a black square and it won't play. Uh, The difficulty there is that the way that Acrobat wants to put it into their PostScript environment is not always something that is licensed to other people. So I think eventually Preview is going to catch up, as all the other readers will. But um, Acrobat is uh, the best tool for making changes and having sort of archive versions that then can be updated and kept up to date. There are, I think, seven certified PDF versions. Uh, they have uh, one for exchanging data and doing prepress printing. Another one for just color management. Uh, the features. The uh, new standard for prepress is the X four. The X5 is apparently an obscure alternative to the PDF X4, and I think that one's for licensing out to third parties. The uh, VT is for variable data and transaction printing, and that goes to databases which are forms-related, and then you want to print out the end result of that form input. And then PDF A is an archiving of electronic documents. So the PDA, uh, PDF A is the primary standard everyone should be using if they want to keep the document for a very long time. If you're just doing documents and they're disposable and they, they end when the project ends, well then you don't need archiving, you just need the, the standard PDF uh, uh, 1A. But if you're going to keep them forever and they become important documents, certainly for some uh, corporations and nonprofit organizations, there are founding documents and contract agreements and stuff they want to keep. And then there's one called the certified PDF, and it proves that the PDF you make there has already been pre-flighted. Now pre-flight is a process for printing, where you work on conforming your document to the kind of printer it's going to go to. Now this isn't just desktop printers, these are massive web printers that, you know, like newspaper rooms have uh, for making many, many hundreds of copies of these things and they want the color accuracy correct and they want the fonts all to fit and all the mathematics that's in the document has to resolve well on these printers. While preflight is a process you go through where you check the document to make sure it's going to print the way you expect. Now printers use CMYK, which is cyan, magenta, yellow and black. And they print layers of them. They start with the yellow and then they do the magenta and then they go through uh, until they get to the black overlay, which is usually your text. And now all your images are correct and they all line up properly and they're all super sharp and clear. And depending on what machine you're using, and some of these guys are they're, uh, three pass prints, they're electronic uh, trace printers. Uh, There are vector printers, and then there are the big web printers that the corporations use for uh, annual reports and that sort of stuff. So uh, you'd have to be conversant in what the printing company you're going to use wants as a PDF, and then find out what format they would prefer, and then make your documents with that format. That way, they will be able to say, yes, this is preflighted, it's good, it's going to go, and we don't have to come back to you and say, change your PDF because it doesn't conform.
4: This, seems pretty this is pretty complicated
1: stuff, yeah. It's a game um, but, uh, because there's all many different kinds of printers in all parts of the world, so.
4: So, so for teachers, right, <laughs> that, that was a lot of different versions. Um, what's the one, like the one thing that they should use or, or the one ver- type that's going to be the most helpful for the most people?
1: Yeah, the PDF-A and the PDF-X are both useful in just printing desktops and for handouts or for students to read on their computers. So, yeah, the PDFA is is perfectly good for everything a teacher's going to use.
4: Great. Um, Producers, remember that you can put your questions into Makana, and we'll get to them, and we'll move to some questions right now. What's our next one? And our next question
0: is from Alexander Knight from Vancouver, British Columbia. And he writes in, Back when I worked in tech, I would routinely create documents in PDF for training purposes, but a lot of this has been supplanted by online knowledge base websites and videos. Where do you still see the value of the PDF format? What do you
4: see, Dave?
1: It's anything that is sort of legally binding is going to be a PDF. It's a level of trust and security. In a lot of areas, trust and security doesn't matter. So in training, yeah, and in education, even there, um, everybody is free to look at whatever a teacher is giving their kids. So it's not secure and secret. Uh, anytime you're dealing with trademark stuff and anytime you're dealing with copyrights and that, and you want to protect them, the PDF allows people to look at the page. They can't copy and paste from it. They can't print it. They can't make changes to it. They can't screen cap it. It's really secure. And that's where your PDF is moving into, is a security layer kind of option. Every lawyer's office I know of now operates exclusively in PDFs. All governments that I've worked with ask me to submit as PDF. And I have a thing that I'm going to show later, which was a corporation that was starting a new business. They were building a a pharmaceutical company and they had to get their regulatory approval. And they had to submit enormous piles of documents. And they came to me and said, is there an easy way to do this, to change things and make them acceptable? And it turned out that yes, PDF was what were the, they were, Health Canada were the people they were trying to impress. All their regulatory filings were done as PDFs, which also included lots of photographs and detailed images, diagrams, charts, floor plans, It all went into PDFs very easily and allowed us to submit things repeatedly with updates and changes. And in the sequence of submissions that they asked for, they all came in as PDF. They actually said there was a list in their requirements of the things not to submit. And the only thing they would take is a USB stick with large documents on it. They felt that was the most secure way within their operation at the government level to keep your stuff secret and you know confined to just those people reviewing it, so that it wasn't on a CD-ROM that would be left in a computer, or it wasn't a big pile of paper that might be in a box that somebody could look into. So they wanted more security at their end, and PDFs managed to do that. Because all the documents we gave them had a pre-arranged password that the regulator would provide to put into the documents so nobody else could see it. And then they would know anybody who had authorization had seen it. Hmm. What's
4: our next question?
0: Eric Billings from Washington, DC wants to know, do any of you have a favorite PDF to text program or programming library for converting both old and new PDFs? What's your favorite, Dave?
1: Hmm. PDF to text. Well I, I use Acrobat and I'm licensed for it and i paid the big fee. And a warning to anyone who's going to go into Acrobat Pro, they're deprecating the downloadable version for your desktop. They want you to work in the cloud. Um, It will make a text export from any PDF. So that's a thing it can do. Um, Because it's what I paid for, I use the most. It's like having an expensive camera. You're going to shoot with that one. So I'm maybe not the guy to ask about that. There are some other ones. uh, And my sister works in film. And she gets... um, She gets... um, Prop lists. That's right. She gets lists of props and they're all in PDF and she'd like to transport them into a text thing so she can make notes on it. And I've tried to teach her to use a PDF reader that allows you to comment to make notes, but she's not happy with it. So she likes to export it to text and she has an iOS app uh, or an iPad app that she uses to, to both read it and then save it as text and then comment and write things back or use it for emails and things. Um, I'm welcome uh, anybody else who works in PDFs or has a PDF to text program would want to suggest because I don't usually do that so
4: yeah and are we one well, my question is are we generally talking about taking a, a PDF that's been written as a document and then printed to PDF I think that's a different process than if you're taking a scanned in document and you have to oCR it um, do you have you ever seen any differences because I know there's lots of tools that can take a PDF and turn it into text. Dave, is mm-hmm. is Adobe's better than any of the others at pulling out that information, whether through optical character recognition or just uh, the built-in extractors?
1: I find that the the readers from Adobe are really good at that, and the Pro version has a scanning feature, like it's a tool right in it that will scan documents and create books. It'll scan document after document, Notes in Mac uh, is doing that as well. They're letting you use the camera on your phone to capture a document, OCR it, and then save it as a PDF. And it's a searchable document. You can find the words in the text. This is now normal for PDFs. So almost everybody who is doing a document scanning concept, and that includes the flatbed scanners too now, the software is now able to just conform it as a PDF and put it into Postscript. So I guess uh, there is no preference. It's sort of try them all, find the one that's affordable for you and, and does the job you want. Uh, if you're making PDFs of a certain kind with these tools and they don't conform to what the other people want to read, that's going to be a problem for you.
4: And I know I, I myself uh, have not paid for a, Adobe Acrobat. Pro. On my Mac, I use PDF Pen Pro, uh, which is a significantly more affordable uh, tool that has 80% of the same features, including the ability to create forms and signatures uh, fairly easily. So that's what I would recommend on the Mac side. Next question. Yeah. Next question comes from Henry Ramos from Yonkers, New
0: York. Do you see any harm in using free websites to merge PDFs? Or is there a low-cost Windows app available to use as a safer alternative?
4: Dave?
1: All right. Um, Full disclosure, I'm not a Windows guy. I've used Windows and worked in Windows, but I've never dived deeply into it, and I'm not totally up-to-date. I would imagine, and Courtney can correct me on this if he has, um, merging PDFs is a pretty unique thing. It's able to be done on the Mac quite easily with drag and drop, And I don't know if there's a Windows app or if Word allows you to do that. I believe Word will take PDFs as elements in a Word document. And if that's the case, and you've got a full page PDF that you want to put in your Word document, it probably will put it in, and then you can save it as a PDF with other information added. I I defer to anybody here who might know about that, but I merge my PDFs using my tools. And I've done it also in Pages, where I've made a PDF in Pages, taken it into uh, Preview, and then taken two or three PDFs that I were provided to me and putting them in as pages in, this, in the stack. And then I can save that version as, P, as my stuff plus theirs and make that the larger PDF that goes out. And it wouldn't matter either way whether the fonts are formatted differently on each document that all those fonts are gonna be in the PDF when it's exported from uh, preview. So I would imagine if Word allows you to put documents in there and make a sequence and then generate a PDF, it's gonna do the same job.
4: Yeah, I think when Word has it, it pulls it in as almost like it's an image. And so it'd be kind of tricky to use Word for that. Uh, There's plenty of iOS-based tools or smartphone-based tools also that can do merging of PDFs, which is probably where I would start. Um, Mm. Just mostly because I'm not familiar with the Windows ecosystem.
1: I have a sort of Swiss Army Knife graphics program, and it's been upgrading each year and getting better at handling PDFs. And now it is offering the take it apart feature where it'll extract the text from a PDF and give it to you. But it'll yeah, it treats it as if it's an image, uh, and a graphical image. And
4: one, one that might be worth looking at is OpenOffice, is a, a free Office mm-hmm. suite that potentially could have some sort of functionality like that. Uh, next question.
1: I actually endorse the Open Office format because ODFs are universally cross-platform, not just uh, PDF platform independent. they're They're going to be an archival type of document that will be supported from here on in because it's not only open source, but there's a large community trying to support it so that when your companies disappear, their documents won't because they'll be ODF.
0: Great. next question. Our next one comes from Tom Tatum from Washington, DC. Is there a recommended program for converting a PDF to an edible doc? They deleted the original document and I only have the PDF.
1: Dave. Well, once again, yeah. Some of the readers will in fact allow you to edit so you can take the text out and that is uh, on the Mac side anyway, preview allows you to select text. As long as it's not secured with a password or something, if you have a text based PDF that was not secured or protected, then you can select the text and then just extract it and make a new document.
4: And then Dave, um, I know that like with PDF pen, when you try to edit uh, the text inside of a PDF, you can, but it doesn't have smarts like line breaks and stuff. How does like Acrobat do with that sort of thing? Is it something that you have to be careful of?
1: That's part of the postscript structure and the math of the postscript. It does everything in blocks. Uh, The headings are a block, Uh, the paragraphs are blocked, and sometimes weirdly. Uh, Paragraphs can have, you know, seven or eight, ten lines, and then they'll produce a second block for the rest of the paragraph. And this is true for all PDFs, so it's just the way PostScript sort of layers things on top and allows you to move content around. Um, So I'm going to go back to what you asked me. Oh, I've forgotten. Anyway. <laughs> that's so all right. When you, but, but it's the structure of the document, these, that's how it works. Yeah, that's right. The editing is f- freaky because it's the way the document structure is. The invisible part of the document is is making sure it all lines up and lays out. And sometimes when you're in these edit things, you'll see little boxes around text. And that indicates that, yeah, these are all sort of blocks of text rather than a stream of text. Um, we, we think of a stream of text as a bunch of ASCII characters following each other across the screen, right? And that they're sort of an endless set of single elements. But in a PDF, those are combined into blocks of uh, description, which is the PDF math that made that section, that block uh, into text. So it's huh. text as an image, I guess. Yeah.
4: What's our next question?
0: Apologies. The last one was from Rajan Chandel. Tom Tatum from Washington DC wants to know, do you use anything other than Acrobat as a creator to make accessible 508 conforming PDFs?
1: I use Pages and I've also used Word. So both of those, if you look at all the menus available for exporting out of Word, you'll find all the PDF formats, uh, most of the ones that I read to you here. Uh, And also Pages. Uh, It's a completely useful PDF format and I've never had anyone who couldn't open one of my PDFs from Pages. I think even WordPerfect and uh, uh, Office, um, OpenOffice and uh, those others all make perfectly good PDFs.
4: Next question.
0: Douglas Carmichael, Dave, you mentioned that lawyers use PDFs extensively. Is there a specific document management software that they use on top of the PDF standard?
1: Well, that's an interesting thing because, yeah, the document management software for lawyers is separate from the way they make documents. So the the document names and file names are all standardized for legal purposes. They have you know, extremely long uh, file names, which indicate various things about the case that they're related to, the time of uh, year that it's uh, being submitted or received. And the sort of things that that lawyers want to keep in their file names is the management of documents. They use the PDF standard that is uh, secure. So they often will have PDFs that are meant only for one customer to read, or for one client to have access to. When they submit them to court, they have to have them as open PDFs. They don't want any protection in the court area because it's all in the public domain. Everything that happens in a courtroom is public. So uh, they submit these things as PDFs. The clerks use them and read from them. And if anyone needs to print things out, then they can do it quite easily. I think uh, they use specifically their um, uh, software is usually a, a sort of suite of things that are sold directly to law firms. And they must conform to the, the Adobe standard and the PostScript settings so that everybody's on the same platform, that nobody's got an advantage.
4: And when, when we, uh, some PDFs have like password protection on them. Is that a standard as well as like, is it a PDF specific standard or is it something that other tools are adding on top of PDF?
1: That came from Adobe. Adobe adds that feature in all their PDF um, code. So you can secure it at various levels. I think I mentioned before, you can make it so you can't print it. Well, that's easy. You can make it so you can't open it. You can make it so that you can open it and read it, but you can't have any of it. You can't screen cap it. Uh, You can't drag and drop uh, text out of it. So if you have an unprotected PDF, there are a lot of things you can do, which is to take that text and use it and paste it into other text documents if you want to protect it you go into the um, uh, properties area and you go into security and then you develop passwords and then you have a menu of checkboxes of things that you want to secure with that password i think there's also a uh, password time limit that you can have in some of the newer versions where this password's only good for six months or three weeks or you can set a sort of thing where this this document is now locked and unavailable to you after a certain period of time.
4: Interesting. Next question.
0: Alexander Knight, Vancouver, BC. Adobe Acrobat has historically had a lot of critical security vulnerabilities. Is there IT pushback on using it in certain environments?
1: Not that I've heard. All the documents and environments that I've had to submit to have never said anything about security vulnerabilities. I. If there are news items on that, I'm not seeing them.
4: I think one concern is some PDFs can have embedded um, JavaScript in them. I think which can uh, run code on a computer. I think is where some of that security comes in. Well,
1: Probably then it's the a FBI. Java security issue, not a PDF, right? If you don't want if you don't want that kind of level of flexibility uh, with links, uh, certainly there's internal links in a PDF, but there are also links to go out. And uh, in order to provide uh, uh, an image preview of a link, you've got to be on the internet. And if you're on the internet reading a PDF, uh, the security of your system is is your responsibility. So I, I don't know that it's a security vulnerability as, if, uh, as much as it is an operator or context for uh, transfer of files.
4: Next question.
0: Douglas Carmichael. Will the Adobe PDF Reader still be the most reliable solution on macOS for filing and signing forms?
1: Dick? Uh, Yes and no. Um, The Reader, yes, allows you to sign documents. But I have found uh, the little tool that comes into preview on Mac is more capable. One of the fun things I was able to show people is that you take a uh, yellow sticky and a uh, Sharpie, And you sign your name on a piece of paper. And then you go into preview and you say, I want to add my signature to the annotation section. And up comes a camera on your laptop or iMac. And you hold your signature up to the camera and frame it up. And it captures it. And then that signature is drag and droppable onto any document, any PDF document. Uh, It's how I've submitted my contracts for the last 15, 15 years, I think. Yeah.
3: Alex? Yeah, Dave, mostly covered it. I mean, the, I, I use preview to sign documents. The nice thing now is that your signature is synced in iCloud. So if you're entirely in the Apple ecosystem, you can go from Mac to Mac to Mac or iOS devices, you can pull your signature down. So I find that incredibly valuable.
1: Have you tried the initial form? Like in some documents you have to initial each page and preview allows you to capture an initial as well. And then you can drag that into each of the pages. It's really okay. Fast. That's a great tip. I love that.
4: What's our next question? Jack
0: Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. PDF are traditionally text-based, two-dimensional print-based. What enhanced capabilities are possible? USDZ, audio, spatial audio, other device viewing, phone, tablet, theater screens, vision control pull requests.
4: Dave?
1: Quite the list. Yes, they're mostly two dimensional. They come from printing. So it's understandable that all of their elements would be printing. One of the biggest challenges Adobe had was transparency. That is, you couldn't do a drop shadow on things until more recently. So then you have to have a certain version of a PDF maker that will allow for trans, uh, transformations and trans. Uh, translucency. Uh, they do have a 3D object tool, and I've never used it. I don't know if it supports USDZ, and I should look into that because it's going to be interesting if it will, uh, because that's a larger standard, not a, not owned by Adobe, so they might have to be licensing to it. Uh, yes, it does audio. I don't imagine it'll do spatial audio because it'll probably fold it back to stereo. And so if the metadata can't be handled because it's this flat environment and it doesn't have the meta, uh, it doesn't know how to decode the spatial. But, you know, that's not saying it'll never happen. Other question device on that. viewing. Quick. Yeah, go ahead. Um,
4: for like audio or video, Dave, you said you can embed. Does the actual video or audio file become part of the PDF or is it just like a frame to reference some external file?
1: It is, it's embedded like the fonts in the PDF and travels with it. Uh, which, when you're using video, uh, makes for very, very large files. Um, Other device viewing. Well, yeah, I think it's already viewable on almost any device. Uh, Handheld laptops, uh, tablets, and phones uh, are all reading PDFs now. So that's all in there. Theater screens is interesting. Theater screens. I imagine that... um, Because it's a high resolution format and it zooms in pretty good, I mean, you can go pretty right down to the, you know, serifs on letters and it's still really sharp. So if you were having to do it at theater size, it would probably look really good. I think maybe some of the advertising you're staring at and those slideshows you can see in a movie theater are done as PDFs. So I don't have any verification of that claim, but I would imagine somebody in that had to do print versions as well, and we're familiar with PDFs, and it's easy to project them. Version control. Yeah, there are version control features in PDFs, and so you can actually mark up a PDF or have comments and then make a version of it that hides all those comments, and then people can go back a version and see what people contributed to the document. So that is, and in terms of pull requests, no, I have no information on that at all. Next question. Our
0: next question comes from Rajan Chandel from Los Angeles. On preview, the drag and drop function to merge single pages is tricky. Sometimes they combine and other times they don't save as a merge and just save as single pages.
4: What
1: am I doing wrong?
4: Do you happen to know
0: Dave, Hmm. preview?
1: Uh, It might be that you're mixing image pdfs with text pdfs and that's a, likely the issue here uh if you've gotten somebody who's given you um what would have been made in, into a tiff and then it's conformed into a pdf uh, then it's just an image it's like a graphic and when you put those things into uh, preview it treats them a little differently than pdf so if it's got pdf pages already and then it has a graphic and then it continues with pdf pages it might not actually have the same number of pages on the finished version because it took it as a graphic that belonged on a, on one of the other pages. Uh, I, I can't really, uh, I'd have to go deeper into what it is you're doing. And, and yes, drag and drop is a little tricky because sometimes I've dragged things in and they've come out horizontal. That is, we've got a lot of vertical pages and then one that wants to be horizontal. And I have to get all really crazy into preview to get that to stand up right. Uh, what are you doing wrong? Probably not much because drag and drop is, is not reliable on Acrobat. Uh, and so they recommend that you go through the dialogues and attach things as objects and as pictures and as music or whatever else. And so if you're adding more, uh, PDFs in, usually you go through a dialogue box, choose that document on your desktop or in a file folder, and then it becomes part of the document you're working on. Um, I don't think Preview has those kind of dialogs because I've never used them. I've always dragged and dropped them. So, And I use that for rearranging the files in the uh, viewer. Uh, the sidebar viewer allows you to drag uh, documents up and down and change the page orders, uh, especially if you're doing other people's PDFs with your own. You want to drag them around. So, yeah, keep trying it, and uh, maybe it'll uh, occur to you what the difference is between those two uh, things, if they're graphics or if they're PDFs for sure.
4: Yeah, I've had the same issue, Rajan, and um, I don't use Preview for that anymore. Another app I think I have on my iPad is called PDF Expert, um, which seems to be a little more reliable. What's our next
1: question? I think that's the one my sister uses is PDF Expert.
4: Oh, PDF Expert. Okay. Next question.
0: Alan Scott from Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada has our next one. Sometimes I get a PDF generated by a website that won't print on my HP printer from my Mac. Any idea why?
1: yeah i would go to see if there's any security protections on that that it won't allow you to print um and for me of course the only way to do that is to open it with acrobat and see what it asked me uh, about the security do you want to change these security settings and then you do um uh it would depend on the website and how how deprecated their version of pdf is if it's a sort of a 1.7 and not a 1.9 uh, then your HP printer may be using a 1.9 driver and postscript, and it doesn't like your 1.7 or your 1.5. So, uh, and the other side is your HP printer might not have the uh, drivers in it for reading and, and uh, unpacking the math that is that PDF. Uh, that would be the thing I'd look into is what, how up-to-date your HP printer is And see if it needs an upgrade to be able to get drivers that will accommodate the new pdf formats
4: next question
0: the next question is from me i typically convert my invoice templates to pdf before submitting to clients are there any best practices for pdf invoices
1: i can't think of anything i mean if you're happy with the templates you submitted as as documents to make them into PDFs, then they'll come out as PDFs on their end. Uh, If you want to protect them, um, that's the only other add-on that I would suggest. But uh, outside of that, yeah, um, I mean, if people are going to accept your invoices as PDFs, then they're probably going to be just fine.
4: One thing you might want to make sure you add, Josh, is uh, like a signature. If you want them to sign it, put a signature field in there, like an actual PDF signature field, so they don't have to try to maneuver around a little image or something like that. Next question. Mm.
0: Thank you. John Edelson from Monterey, California, US. What is the best way to create a reduced size PDF file from an Apple pages saved as PDF? I know Acrobat Pro does a great job of file size reduction, but I do not like the two step pages to PDF. Then go to Acrobat Pro for size reduction. We'll start with Dave and
4: then go to Alex.
1: Yeah, I've come across this repeatedly and I'm unhappy with the Quartz minimizing algorithm because it makes it very fuzzy. It does not zoom in very well and even in printing I'm not happy with it. So, yes, uh the Quartz reduction is just an accommodation that Preview does and that Pages uh offers and uh I've had to reduce some to almost draft mode to be able to squeeze through somebody's email's client. And I've never been happy with the results. You're right that Acrobat itself, the Acrobat Pro, has a more granular selection on how much compression you want to put on anything in the document, whether you want all the font in there or only the letters that were used. And of course, with longer documents, you probably use the entire alphabet at some point. But there are letters in the alphabet that never get used in a document, and you can select and remove those, and only the portion of the font that is used is going to be included that doesn't create too much compression Uh, but at the same time you can spec you can set resolution levels for images and and resolution output levels and then it allows you to to reduce it on a granular level until you get to a level that you're happy with both image wise and size wise for file Um, and that's an advantage i think Adobe's going to keep is that they're always going to have more Flexibility in their document construction than would be allowed as code and as as licensing for uh, other platforms yeah i'm I'm on your side. I do not like the compression on there, and I often have started at that and then just gotten frustrated and said, why don't I why am I not opening this in my Acrobat Pro and doing a better job of it? So yeah, that's it that's an issue. And I got to caution you, you can't recompress uh rich media they call it. So your audio can't be compressed and your video can't. And if you're using three D objects, which I hope to try soon, uh, it may not compress those either. So it may be the things in your document, like the images, that you're going to have to go into and say, "I'm going to, I'm going to let the quartz thing do its thing with my pictures and make them fuzzy." Alex? Alexander.
3: Yeah, I've used the good, better, best compression that's built into preview. I don't really like to do it that way, though. Uh, As far as file sizes, I gave up on sending attachments years ago. I've moved away from Dropbox. I got all my stuff on iCloud. and Now with iCloud public sharing links, I can just put that into iCloud Drive, select share, make it, set the permissions to public, and just send the link to somebody, and that's been working for me.
4: And uh, I see... John I, John was saying that he doesn't like the two-step process. I, does um, Acrobat Pro have the ability to integrate with like Automator or any of those, uh, or shortcuts or anything to, if you put it in a, a PDF in a folder, it will automatically reduce it if you built the right workflow, does anyone know?
1: I've never had a need for that, but it does make sense that it would be capable of taking the commands or the tool uh, variables from Acrobat, and allow you to use them as as a stage process, drop folder. You put things in a drop folder that come out as two sizes of PDF and you can choose which one you want to use. Yeah.
4: I'm sure you can do I'd that with Apple's that. compression. I just don't know if we could do it with the Adobe's. That's
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. And as as um, um Alexander has just pointed out there's there's exporting your pages document as a PDF which allows you a low medium and high quality output and then there's the preview compression so you open a document that you didn't make and it's huge and you want to make it smaller. It allows you to save as and then you can have an option in your drop down you can either save it as other things such as even HTML uh, but you can also save it as a compressed or a small format and I think it's the last item on the menu or something way at the bottom of the scroll.
4: All right, next question. Brett
0: Bielow from Appleton, Wisconsin. Will it ever be possible to generate PDF documents that are truly responsive and ditch it's fixed with formatting that causes so many mobile usability issues?
1: Dave? Yeah, that's sort of a philosophical question. It's a good one to look at because if PDF documents were stretchable uh, and uh, re-wrappable and that sort of thing it would be actually more useful to people and also if it were understanding that it's a mobile platform it would allow for changes in contrast it would allow for font sh- uh, shifting or shaping and and PostScript should be able to do that because it's part of what Apple already does so yeah I think in at some point it's going to be truly responsive and and it might even be um, a thing that's i wouldn't call it interactive but it is for you to format like you would a, an ebook uh you could set the parameters of how you want this all your pdfs to display and it would modify the display and not really worry about the pdf itself but you're right the pdf comes from print which had its rules about how much space between lines how much space between words and and gaps uh how you do uh um uh, margins, and uh, there are, uh, for print purposes, there are edge markings that you install on a page where to cut the paper. Uh, these are the, the markings, the little square markings you sometimes see on boxes and that is where where the cutter is going to cut the paper to make the book. And these are marked in on every page so that it lines up perfectly. Page, as you flip through a book, it all stands in the same place as you look through it as an animation. All the words are going to be in that box in our stretchable world of mobile and desktop and all the rest, it would be really interesting to modify the postscript format to allow us a flexible document. I don't see why they can't do it, but maybe it's all about that tech and research.
3: Alexander. Well, I, th- I certainly think there are, it's definitely something I think needs to happen. I mean, we certainly have on, on smartphone devices. Now we have processing power enough to do this stuff locally. So I definitely think it needs to happen. I mean, and I'll be fairly brief about this. I love the ubiquity of of PDF as a technology. But one of the things that was always frustrating to me when uh, newspaper publications and magazine publications started to move towards digital, they were just basically spitting out a carbon copy of what they had in print on PDF. And it was never formatted for mobile devices. It was never mobile first. And of course now Apple has their own format for magazine publications to try to solve this problem. So it's definitely something that needs a lot more work.
1: Yeah, that was a huge mistake they made is not to make a conformed to tablet sized version of what it is they were publishing. They virtually gave us the plates that they printed with as PDFs. And then you had to zoom in and pan around and it became a real chore to read anything and it didn't. Because in a, in a newspaper or magazine, you can have an article that continues on the next page, but it's in a different place. And so if you go for another page in a PDF, and then you have to search, you have to zoom back and find out where you are, and then zoom back in again, it's pointless. And a lot of people are not going to put up with that, including my mother. So, yeah, that's a mistake.
4: And from our earlier question in the chat, Todd Weiser says, you actually can use Adobe Acrobat Pro for Autometer, And he also recommends PDF Optim to reduce file sizes. And we'll end our Thank question with... Thank you for that.
1: One. That is great. Thanks.
4: What's our last question, Josh?
0: Final question comes from Eric Kramer in Maine. Is there any tool to sanity check a PDF for accessibility compliance? For example, screen reader you can use, alt text on images, etc.?
1: uh, You know, you'd think I was a salesman for Acrobat Pro, but just recently I was educated by Hershid and his friend Sarah, I'm going to say, Sandy. And uh, we were discussing something for something else. And I was sending them PDFs and they were reading them. And then they said, have you run this through the tool that PDFs have for testing against accessibility? And I had no idea it was there. It's not a tool I needed to use. When I brought it up, it's a phenomenal tool. Now, in the other tools, prepress, you go through a prepress check and it gives you a whole lot of lists of things you're going to have to change if this prepress is going to work. And you work to go through each one and correct them. It's a lot like HTML correcting and that sort of stuff. And then this accessibility tool allowed me to go back and look at some of my early documents and see just how badly they were laid out and how poor my headings were and how they didn't conform. And so, yeah, the accessibility tool is right there in Acrobat Pro. I don't know of any other PDF tool that does that. So, the, yeah, they will comply to make it reader-friendly. They'll take image uh, tags. And I was actually, we run out of time here, but I was prepared to do a demo of a tagging of a document. And it's actually the, um, it's the Office Hours media workflow for editors that is coming up for NAB, and it was made as a PDF. And I ran it through the accessibility tool, and it found that every one of the images that he captured on screen to show people how to do things, and you know, he's got arrows and boxes and things saying what your settings should be, and none of them were tagged with an alt. And so you can go in very quickly on Acrobat and put alt tags on that document and then save it again. And then you can put other comments on your formatting and details so they're alt, um, telling somebody that this is a heading, not just another set of two or three words in a sentence. And you have to tag all those things. The tool actually will attempt that. It'll do an auto-tagging for any document to make it conform. And then they do a check on it, and it gives you all the access that you have to correct along the way. It's quite powerful. It's really fast. And I was able to actually learn how to use it virtually in a half an hour. And now I'm going to be using it as part of my routine to when I finish a a PDF, I'm going to run it through a test. And correcting those things, they have a lot of helpful hints as to how you would do it and anything you need to sort of be coached on. There's a web link in the tools that takes you directly to Adobe's instructions on how to do that. So it was easy for me to go back and forth and find out how to do that. And this is very similar to how it does a comparison of files or to how to prepare for press. And preparing for press is extremely complicated because it starts with what kind of press are you going to use for this? And then the menus all change according to what that press offers. Uh, One of the big discoveries I made recently was that they've added a tool called um, print production. And in it, you can do an ink estimate it's going to estimate based on your document how much ink it will use per version. And you can actually uh, set densities for the, the ink and you can actually zero out inks and then just use black, or you can mix the inks according to what your colors are going to be. And just take everything back a little bit if you want to save on ink. So in that sense, it would save on toner and and home printers as well. You'd be able to reduce the amount of uh, ink that the, or toner, that a document's going to need just to be reproduce, you know, 38 that you're handing out in a classroom. So, oh, wow. a lot to learn to about those.
4: PDFs. Uh, thanks yeah. so much, Dave, for being our guide today. Who knew mm. that you could do so many different things like embedding video and audio into PDFs? Not me until today. So mm. thank you also panelists who are here every day to answer our questions and provide insights. We're much smarter as a group than as we are as individuals. Thank you back in crew for making sure we all get to the right place, look presentable, and can focus on the conversation. It really does take a village to lead, herd these creative cats. And finally, thank you, producers. There's literally no show without you or your questions. couple quick reminders. Uh, John Pretta will be having a f- live feed from NAB today in After Hours at 6 PM Pacific. Next week for the Education Hour, we have a special guest calling in from across the Pacific. El- Alan Carrington will be here to talk about learning design, Specifically, how to use his pedagogy wheel, and it is pad, like iPad, to build lesson plans and identify appropriate learning activities using Bloom's Taxonomy. It's going to be a great conversation. We look forward to seeing you next week, and stay tuned through the credits. Oh, Interesting stuff.
1: Yeah. I had a um, a 22-page submission for that pharmaceutical company, which on which there was a video on each page. Um, yeah, it's 180 gigs of video. And, uh, yeah, it was hard to make and hard to move around. But because we were submitting on a USB stick, which I have right here, um, we used a 256 stick, and we got all our documents on there. So, and they had no trouble reading it when you know the instru- It came with a copy of the installer for Adobe Reader. So, but I knew all federal government people have Reader on their machine. But the company I was wor- working with had no readers. They used all the free Reader. Are we jumping edu today,
0: or just
4: straight Straight to
0: Okay. Uh, after our shirt.